Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Quick note before we start the show. We at Passport, we're an international crew making a show that hopes to connect people, no matter where you are in the world. From time to time, there will be things that happen that we feel like we should address. If you get our newsletter, we'll be including some thoughts there about events unfolding right now. It's available at FrequencyMachine.com Passport. To our friends in the U.S., we love you, we're thinking about you, and we hope you're safe. Thanks for listening. All right, so this is happening. I'm excited. Let's count to 10 together, like each taking a number to see what the delay is like. One. Two. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, the magic of editing will cut out the silence of our dumbness. Oh God, if I could only have that in real life. <laughs> a destination isn't always a place. Sometimes it's a new way of seeing things. I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos. From Frequency Machine, this is Passport. Your ticket to everywhere. There are things we think we know about places. But history, prejudice, stereotypes, and the viral nature of 24-hour news and social media has made common knowledge about faraway places even more twisted than ever. Today on Passport, we clear up some of the outright lies about an entire nation by doing what we do best, talking it out with someone who actually knows what they're talking about. Think of this as a kind of cultural mythbusters. We're calling it Misinfo Nation. Yeah. And today, <laughs> we're going to Scotland. Kind of.
Yeah. People talk about Scotland like it's just Sean Connery, Haggis, Braveheart, Scotch whiskey, bad weather, and even the worst food. So we scoured the internet and wrote a list of the top 10 things the world believes about Scotland. Are the highlands just filled with the sound of bagpipes and drunken, indecipherable redheads? Do the Scottish embrace Donald Trump's heritage? Is there a dinosaur living in Loch Ness? And what should a man really wear under his kilt? With help today from John English, the only Scotsman we know with an understandable accent, we discover just how wrong the world is about truly one of the most beautiful countries on the planet. John is a filmmaker, teller of tall tales, pop culture beast, born and raised a stone's throw away from Loch Ness. If anybody has the answers, it's gotta be him. Welcome to Misinfonation. Do you know that I um, I was speaking to a non-Scottish friend about this upcoming podcast? Yeah. They were asking, well, what do you think they're going to talk about? So I, I actually have a list. I want to know how many of these are on your list to talk to yes. me about. Oh, awesome. Right. Number one, incoherent dialogue. Ding. Number two, alcoholism. Ding. Uh, number three, inferiority complex about england <laughs> it's close but no cigar i mean that's a good one though that's a really good one number four um battered mars bars ding yes. <laughs> oh yes number five battered foodstuffs in general ding ding god damn it <laughs> number six would be generally unhealthy lifestyles stemming from battered mars bars and battered foodstuffs in general <laughs> I like how important this section is. <laughs> Number eight, heroin addiction, ding, based ding, entirely ding, on train spotting, <laughs> even though it's a 25 oh, year old. Oh, if, if we could make <laughs> balloons fall over you right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one. Obsessed with football, but rubbish at football. <laughs> That's so wonderful. Foul and abusive oh. language. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. Uh, and the Loch Ness Monster. Of course. Are you there kidding? There we go. Holy God. <laughs> I mean, fortunately for you both, that is the end of my research. I didn't think of anything witty or stylistic to say about any of those things. <laughs> so it won't help us at Perfect. all. Perfect. Perfect. Clichés follow us around. John knows this because he has to hear about what the world thinks it knows about Scotland every time he meets someone anywhere in the world, or even if he hangs out with me in Andres for a few hours. Scotland is a pretty small nation, about the size of South Carolina. It sits on the northern end of the United Kingdom, right above England. It's home to only five and a half million people, but its whole culture is internationally emblematic. It's known the world over and has been the butt of, oh, so many jokes. The truth is Scotland is a total knockout. In fact, in 2017, readers of Rough Guide voted it the most beautiful country on earth. Tall tales and incredible beauty live in Scotland. J.K. Rowling put Hogwarts in the Scottish Highlands when she wrote Harry Potter. That's how much magic this place inspires. It's truly mythic. And with that in mind, 
Young John English grew up right near one of the most infamous, mysterious stories in the country. I am from a not even village called Mobui, <laughs> with population hyphen. Like, I honestly, I think that's how it be stated in the census. My address doesn't even say the word Mobui in it. It's this vague sort of sweeping <laughs> highland notion. That is an amazing name, though. <laughs> Mobui. It means something in Gaelic. <laughs> John English was born in a town called something. Mobui is 11 miles north of Inverness. Inverness is obviously at the mouth of Loch Ness. So there, there. That's going to locate suddenly. Suddenly, the knowledge level rises for all listeners <laughs> from zero to one hundred percent. So that's pretty Scottish. I mean, my my father literally grew up a mile and a half from the banks of Loch Ness. Okay. How how far back do they does does the Mulbuie Englishes go? Well, I mean. As, as our more discerning listeners might have noticed, I have quite a shit name for this podcast. Um, so on on one side of my family, like my mum's side of my family, they go back, like way back, beyond what I know. They're from Shetland, the islands that are so Scottish, they're almost Norwegian. The Shetland Isles, way off the northeast coast of Scotland, are barely 200 miles from Norway. The Shetlands are stunning. A cluster of a hundred islands, only 15 of which are inhabited. It's a birdwatcher's paradise, a whale watcher's paradise, and apparently Frankie's Fish and Chip Shop in the village of Bray is the best in the country, which puts it certainly in the running for the best in the world. A lad with roots in the most northern Scottish isle, raised only a few miles from the most famous lake in Scotland. That's Loch in Gaelic. Saying lake in Scotland is a no-no. The general thought is that everybody in Scotland loves the Loch Ness Monster. Nah. nah. Like, I think <laughs> people who people who love the Loch Ness Monster are people who make money from the Loch Ness Monster. There have been accounts of Nessie since the late 1800s. But the most famous sighting of the beloved huge long-necked creature was in 1933. Over the years, there have been photos, hoaxes, DNA tests, and weird sonar blips. There is no one in the world who wouldn't think of Nessie while standing on the banks of Loch Ness. There's something weird about that place, definitely. There's something weird about that loch. There's mountains all around it, and they just carry on straight down. So if you can imagine, it just creates this really, really deep basin. There's a vast quantity of really cold water in it. Um, what was your relationship to the Loch Ness Monster? Is it only tourists, or did somebody ever talk to you about Like, was My it- auntie got a school bus along the sides of Loch Ness. And whether she saw something could be disputed. But whether their bus stopped pulled over and all of the people on the bus and the driver got out is indisputed. Wow. They saw something weird that day in the lock. Obviously, like, ah, uh, 
I don't know. I don't think there's a fucking dinosaur in the wall. <laughs> the first time it was ever written about was in was 1933, right? This guy called Alex Campbell. Well, you can't trust a Campbell. Yeah. <laughs> My family are McDonald's. You've just discredited this whole section. <laughs> Nessie is not real. Um, oh, but there's awesome. something weird. There must be something weird about, I don't know whether it's the wind or whether it is the wave patterns or whether there's something weird in that lock that makes people see stuff. That That is undeniable. I might have said lake there. That's really depressing. <laughs> I would never say lake unless I was speaking to you two. Oh, we are so going to make your life a living hell. Oh, God. The Scottish language has been used as a comedy foil in countless films and TV shows. Well, since forever. Even a machine programmed to understand every word in English fails every time. Check out this clip of a desperate Scot getting in a fight with Alexa. Alexa, play Something's Cooking in My Kitchen by Dana. I can't find Something's Cooking in My Kitchen by Dana on Spotify. It's no f- Dana. F-ing cow. Sorry, I'm not sure. You're f- not sure. Alexa, I'm going to be nice. Alexa. Please, please, something's cooking in my kitchen by Donna. I can't find something's cooking in my kitchen by Donna in your music library. Well, f- look it up, you cow. Scotland, in fact, holds many, many dialects of its own. Tens of them. And three languages. Gaelic, Scots, and English. Most of the accents and dialects come from a blend of them. And despite the fact that most of the world claim they don't understand them, I do. And I love them. Do you love the Scottish accent? Do I love the Scottish accent? Not, dear listener, quite as much as Neil Innes loves the Scottish accent, (laughs) is what I would say. I don't know what you're talking about. Twelve voice messages, (laughs) maybe just today, that all have... (laughs) How how bad is Neil's Scottish accent? Depressingly, I've heard a lot worse. He's okay. all, all right as hey. English. No, I mean, don't take hey. that as a compliment. It's shocking. <laughs> but <laughs> I think there's something about the Scottish accent that people believe they're really good at it. I think, like, they've seen Billy Connolly once and they just think that you're going to be blown away by how good their Scottish accent is. Oh, I'm so guilty. <laughs> I can't help it. I'm like a sponge. I'm like a stupid sponge. Like I do it with Andreas and I can't, I just can't help it. Especially when I'm voicemail when I'm like alone. I'm like, yeah, this will be funny. Hello. (laughs) In some parts of Scotland, it really is hard to believe you're hearing the English language. I have only come across a couple of times where it really was like a different language. Incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. For me, yeah, as a as a young Bolivian lad, it was yeah. the word, like certain words where it's like, haim for home. You've got the distinction there is between the accent and the actual, like, the Scots language, because there is a Scots language that is, you've got in the north of Scotland, like where I'm from, Gaelic was predominantly the language, but in the south, Gaelic was never the main language. It was it was a language called Scots. And when you hear like modern day Glaswegian, what you're hearing is a is a kind of mix of English and Scots. 
So you could argue that that is, if not a language, certainly a dialect that's a mix of Northern English and Southern Scots. Is that what you're? Is that what you're reading when you're reading those old Scottish poems, like the Robbie Burns poems? Right. So Robbie Burns. Robbie Burns. Yeah. Robbie Burns wrote in Scots, um, and that's so. That's what you would be. That's what you'd be reading there. It's incredibly weird and but beautiful at the same time, especially to try and work out how it's how it's spoken. It's really incredible. Ye powers for Mac, mankind your care, and dish them out their bill of fare. Old Scotland wants nae skinking wear that joups and luggies. But if ye wish her great for prayer, gi her a haggis. That's Rabbi Burns' address to a haggis, a very confusing love letter to Scotland's infamous national dish. Traditionally, it's read before eating it on Burns Night, on the 25th of January. Most people know haggis because of its highly questionable ingredients, in which you'll find hearts and lungs of one lamb, one pound of beef or lamb trimmings, two onions finely chopped, eight ounces of oatmeal, salt and pepper, coriander, mace, and nutmeg. Then you cook all that up, and you stuff it inside a sheep's stomach, and then you boil it. So clearly, the world thinks that haggis is friggin' disgusting. <laughs> Miss Infonation, haggis is amazing. It needs to be in with neeps and ties. Like, you need the sweetness of that, of that turnip and the kind of salty, buttery potato just to take the edge off it, because it's a pretty spicy dish. You know, but but good haggis is one of my favourite things. Have you ever had a battered haggis? Oh, <laughs> you deep fry that too. Of course, that's like a, I would say that that is the sixth most ordered item in Scottish chip shops. What John is describing is haggis dunked in batter, kind of like southern fried chicken, deep fried and then surrounded by French fries. Where would you go for like the best battered haggis in Scotland? You're like your local chipper. I mean, they like. The northeast is good for fish and chips in general, for like chip shops, as long as you're throwing it a lot of batter into hot fat and surrounding it with chips. You can't really <laughs> go wrong. <laughs> Deep frying is one of many things that Scotland does well. So much so that the world believes that every single living Scot is one second away from a massive coronary. They'll throw anything in batter and dunk it in oil, chocolate bars, haggis, pizza. There's even a fish bar in Perthshire which offers a deep-fried Christmas dinner. The fryer is an undisputed hero of Scottish cooking, but we found a whole load of other weird dishes. So it's time for a misinformation lightning round. How many of these dishes you know you've tried and if you like them. Go. Number one, Festy Cock. Never heard of it. Festy Cock is a pancake made with oats. Sounds delicious. <laughs> Number two, Cock a Leaky Soup. Ah, oh, Cock a Leaky Soup, sure. Yeah, it's nice. Cock a Leaky Soup is chicken leek and potato soup. Great. Fatty Cutty. Fatty Cutty. Are you sure you're saying these right? <laughs> Fatty Cutty is a scone. God knows why they named it that. This is the best. Rumble the thumps. Rumble the thumps. 
That's made up. Someone's <laughs> you up. Best name of a dish ever. Rumble the thumps is basically any leftovers you have in the fridge, thrown in a pot with some cheese, then slammed in the oven. Strip it balls. Strip it balls. No, I've got no idea what that is. Hard candy, usually aniseed flavored. Mm-mm, Deep fried pizza. Deep fried pizza is outstanding. When when Scotland played Italy at football, and obviously there is a huge divergence in the quality of um, the football played by Italy compared with the football played by Scotland. Um, but to try and wind up the Italian crowd, um, the Scottish fans sang, deep fry your pizzas, we're gonna deep fry your pizzas. <laughs> I guess at this point, I should also note that the, the mother of your children is from Italy. She is, yeah. So I particularly enjoyed that. Like, we might not be any good at football, but, oh, we can fuck with your food. <laughs> The UK in general, and Scotland in particular, usually top lists the world over as one of the worst countries to get a meal. But what does John think? Yeah, I think, I, yeah, I would disagree with that. A, because, like, I think that we have amazing fish and amazing game and, like, amazing, like, soil for, like, homegrown vegetables, if, if cooked right, and there's, I, and there's loads of incredible Scottish chefs using our ingredients really well. But also, I think because, like, we've... We are a nation like that has embraced immigration and like embraced it not just for social or economic reasons, but like really kind of celebrated the things that other people have brought. So like I think you can get a better tandoori in Glasgow than pretty much anywhere else in the world outside India. I mean, the people of Bradford might argue with you about that, but there's just fantastic food from all over the world because I think, like, Scottish people are quite adventurous when it comes to food. They're like, if there's there's a new type of food that came along at one point in history, yeah, we might chuck it and batter it to see if we can improve it. Sometimes we can. But um, <laughs> on, on the whole, we're, we're kind of up for it. In just a minute, more fun with kilts, heroin and the wonder of Iron Brew, the world's greatest soda. Hi, everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Almost top of the list of things you picture when you think about Scotland is a man in a skirt. The kilt is arguably the most identifiable cultural dress in the world. Weddings, formal occasions need a kilt. It dates back to the 16th century when it was worn as a six meter length of fabric which wrapped your whole shoulders and body. In the 19th century, the kilt got shorter and turned into the pleated knee length which the world knows and loves super stylish. It's thought to originally 
have been Scandinavian. It comes from the word kjalta, which means pleated. Interesting enough, but in the world of misinformation, there is really only one question. It's the obvious one. What's going on under there? Does a Scotsman wear anything under his kilt or does he free ball that shit? <laughs> I've, I've been known to dabble in both. I've never started an evening without a pair of boxer shorts underneath it. <laughs> but at various points in evenings, it is quite commonplace for the knickers to be ditched that's a weirder answer than i was expecting that's like well sometimes and sometimes not but i didn't expect like the sometimes and sometimes not to be within the same evening always i'm gonna be really really believing about this because i have no idea how this works but like when you're given your first kilt yeah do you like get instructions Ah oh, man! Is it, like what is it? It's um the fitting of of a kilt is such a mission. It is a good few meters of material that's required to create a kilt, and you have to go for a number of different fittings. Where like a sort of old, very grumpy man kind of just hoists you about a bit and kind of like <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing gentle about it. <laughs> That's amazing. So it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And like a, a, like a typical kilt will definitely cost upwards of like 500 pounds. So like 600 wow. euros ish for the, for the actual, for the actual kilt itself. And then you've got all the, the other stuff that goes with it. You know, you've got your, like your day dress, which is like waistcoat and tweed jacket. And you've got your, I mean, I'm going to list just for comedy purposes, all the different <laughs> things that are part <laughs> of the kilt. So You've got your sporin. Um, historically, your um, ball protector. Now, your mobile phone carrier. Um, you've got That's your. What that thing is? Oh my god! That it, thing is meant to protect your balls. It's meant to protect your balls, but but it actually just hammers you in them like all of the time. So, Neil, right. as you've worn a kill. Yes. Once for a fancy <laughs> dress party. Wow. That is some cultural appropriation <laughs> bullshit right there. That's a sporin. Uh, and then you have knitted socks. And essentially your socks must be knitted by your granny. And they must be knitted in a with <laughs> oh an itchiness God. of wool that is similar to fluffy steel. I think that's how I describe them. <laughs> they are misery to wear. <laughs> Wait, wait, what are the things that keep these things up? Garters with flashes. You have the garters to keep them up and the flashes are the sort of bits of material that come out the end of those garters. Yes. And then stuck into the side of your socks um, is your ski and do. And that's your knife. That's your knife oh. that you have tucked into your sock for stabbing Ennis when he dresses up in a fancy <laughs> dress party. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh god, my I mean, god. What, what what's really cool about this? I'm I'm now going to go a little meta just for a second, but I'm actually learning things. First of all, which is amazing. <laughs> Second of all, the kilt actually seems like the least interesting part of this whole fucking outfit. Why are we focused Definitely. on the kilt? <laughs> Absolutely. And it is like you need you do need like a construction manager to put together the sort of bag that it goes in any time that you're any time that you're traveling anywhere you know it's like all the 
pockets and zips and things like that that are required to store your various kilting components. How how um, far away from your kilting components are you at this very moment? About two and a half meters away from my main kilting components. I have them have them all here in the wardrobe. I am COVID lockdowned in my in my bedroom. So yeah, not not far away at all. Would you like me to change? <laughs> <laughs> that would be some good radio. <laughs> So along with the kilt, the bagpipes must be tied for top spot of all things uniquely Scottish. Even though some historians claim they are originally Egyptian, the bagpipes were probably brought to Scotland by invading Roman legions in about 50 AD. The squealing sound of a cat in heat being strangled by an even larger and even hornier cat runs in the nation's veins. It has the power to reduce large, hairy sports fans to tears, just as it brings the rest of us to our knees. Everyone in Scotland loves the bagpipes, right? Nah, they're just kind of like, it's weird. They're one of those things that are just there. And like sometimes in the right setting, they can sound all right. Most of the time they sound brutal though don't they like you're, you're walking on princess street in edinburgh and there's like 64 pipers busking against each other essentially just clashing with each other oh it's, it's horrific but um but done right yeah it's amazing and like inspiring and motivating and glorious but um it does just make you think yeah come on <laughs> Fuck England! (laughs) (laughs) The historic rivalry between the English and the Scottish is a never-ending source of incredible banter between the two countries. And it's old. Since 122 AD, when some Roman bloke called Hadrian put up a wall between England and Scotland because... Well, the Caledonians, as they were known then, scared him. In 1072, William of Normandy invaded Scotland. In 1296, King Edward I. He overthrew Scotland's King John, and this led to William Wallace's uprising. That's Braveheart to you and me. 1314's Battle of Bannockburn, when King Edward II was defeated by Robert the Bruce, was the moment when Scotland secured its independence. But the battles continued over the next 300 years, the most famous in 1745 when Bonnie Prince Charlie laid claim to the Scottish and English throne. His army was initially successful, but ultimately beaten at the Battle of Culloden. The Scottish would have reason to hate them. But in a poll conducted in 2018, The reasons that the Scots hate the English was actually revealed to be a list of good-natured and often hilarious grudges, including football hooliganism, not being able to handle the booze, being afraid of snow, voting for Brexit, applying fake tan, and of course wearing socks with sandals. So do the Scottish truly hate the English? I don't think there's there's anyone that holds like that much deep-seated resentment to England as a country at all. The problem the problem more than anything else is it's all of these things that that then get bundled in with Englishness because they're kind of overrepresented in the right wing English press and in Westminster. 
and that's where it all stems from. I'd say that it's like it's one of the greatest things about the United Kingdom in general is like the you know the English shit on the Scottish, the Scottish shit on the English, everyone shits on the Welsh, the Irish shit right. in the middle of everything, the Scottish shit on the Irish. It's like it's this like kind of just it it never kind of hurts. <laughs> what I just you know my my sort of sociologist sociologist grown up answer is the one that I present to podcast them on, but then. The truth is also that I would say 98% of favourite Scots, if polled, would describe their favourite moment of any film of all time being the hold moment in Braveheart, which is essentially the moment before thousands of English people are going to be bludgeoned to death by pointed <laughs> trees. <laughs> You know, like, how old is that film? But if you still go into any pub that's a bit rowdy in Scotland and start going, hold, hold, <laughs> people will join in. That's amazing. We made it to Braveheart. <laughs> it's unavoidable. So the question of the Scottish hating the English is not really going to get you anywhere. But anytime you ask, you'll always end up at Braveheart. Either that or train spotting. Irvin Welsh's squalid, brilliant junkie novel turned kinetic Danny Boyle classic left a mark around the world and made Ewan McGregor a star. But with fame comes great misinformation. John, mm. you've tried heroin, right? <laughs> I have let my country down by avoiding heroin uh, up to the but hey there's still time you know that's what I always that's how I always that's how I always feel about drugs that I haven't taken yet you know if there's some new youthful drug or something like that knowing John we kind of guessed he didn't quite have that addictive personality until we mentioned something very Scottish something very sweet very bright very bubbly something John was once very much addicted to Something that took over his life and his house. If haggis is the national dish, then surely the national drink is not whiskey, but iron brew. A magical drink with an unplaceable flavor and a color so orange that even the color orange just goes, what the fuck is that? Iron Brew is, yeah, who knows? Like it's, it's made in Scotland from girders, as the, um, as the advert says. Bar's Iron Brew, made in Scotland from girders. Made in Scotland from girders. The huge iron beams which hold up buildings. This is the hardest soda in the universe. Drink Iron Brew, you'll be rock solid. It's Scottish. That's the <laughs> that was the message. It's like yeah, it's just I don't I have no idea what flavour it is, but it's truly glorious. It was like um when we were at uni we we made it into the local paper because um we I mean there were six of us six of us in the flat and I would say that there was consumption of at least three to four litres of iron brew per day in that flat. Like most of us would pick up a glass bottle of iron brew on the way back from classes and we kept them because obviously you got like back then you got like you got 20 pence back and your your bottle of brew your glass bottle of brew cost you about 
between 61 and 69p depending on your retail establishment and um and you but you got 20p return if you took it back so but we we kept them all year they became the decor of the of the basically the skirting boards of our entire flat like you you come in the front door and they just they traced the outline of the flat all the way around it sometimes like two or three deep and they were into people's bedrooms and stuff like that the house that iron brew built yeah and at the and at the end of the end of the year we're moving out of the flat um and we we caught bars who are the makers of iron brew we called them up and, and they um we told them that we had however many hundred bottles of iron brew that and could they and they sent bar sent a, a lorry to pick them all up and cashed us out and we had a party and got rattled with the money that we we made from it <laughs> Bought a lot more oh. bottles of Iron Brew in the morning to deal with the hangovers. <laughs> a heartwarming story brought to you by Iron Brew. <laughs> I fucking love Iron Brew. <laughs> uh. We couldn't help but jump from one incredibly orange thing with no taste to another. Is it true that Scotland has embraced Donald Trump as their true Scottish son. <laughs> you may not have known this, but Mama Trump, Marianne MacLeod, she came from the Hebridean Isle of Lewis, just off the coast of West Scotland. It is, of course, bollocks. Um, yes. People in Scotland despise Donald Trump the same as pretty much people everywhere else. Although we do get good opportunities to to embrace it because he often visits his golf courses. If you, There are some cracking signs in the... Um, that people prepare every time he visits his um, golf courses, which are just one interpretation or another of "Could you fuck off, please?" Uh, <laughs> wow. Some of these signs are outstanding. I hate crowds, but I hate Trump more. Zen monks against Trump. Beat it, you big orange jobby. <laughs> Scotland. We hated him first. And many jabs at the blonde cobweb he calls hair, including we shall overcome and there will be hell to pay. To pay. Get it? I guess anyone around the world with any semblance of Scottish heritage is super annoying to an actual Scot. My last name is Innes. Pretty Scottish. I thought I'd see how angry we could make John English, the Scotsman, by properly tracing my family's family tree. My father bought like the full membership for the Ancestry.com. Uh, right. <laughs> right. Oh, I love where this <laughs> is going. Yeah. He got quite far and uh, sort of handed handed me the keys. So I got I got into it on my grandfather's side all the way back. I'm almost 100% sure that I have direct lineage, or as direct as can be, to the first Innes. Wow. 1140, James Innes the Innes. Is this, your, is this your most journalistic moment, Neil? I'm not really sure what's going on here. Is this just a ploy so you can use the Scottish accent on John English? Is this what you're trying to do here? Since we're both Scottish... Um. <laughs> yeah, is it or have you just sort of deleted any mm, creeping respect I might have had for your Scottishness? <laughs> I love it.
I guess this is something that must happen quite a bit, at least from Americans, right? Or at least yeah. the, Ir- the Irish must get this. Yeah. I don't know if the Scots get this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When I was in the States, like someone would come up to me and go, ah, yeah, I'm Scottish too. And I'd be like, you have literally never left Philadelphia in your life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all for it. I have to say, I kind of like it. Like when when Americans come to Highlands and they and they like they talk about their history, they're generally really fascinated, really respectful. They kind of have a laugh at themselves for pronouncing stuff wrong. Like right. generally, the Americans that care about their clan history are totally open to learn and want to know, want to know more about it, and kind of want to be schooled on it a bit. It's it's good fun nice. most of the time. I I, I, I want to know so much more now because I you know I didn't want to be that Scottish. <laughs> It wasn't a you nice can, surprise. You can <laughs> let that concern go. You're not Scottish at all. You're some croft-burning laird that's strolled up from England to burn people out of their homes and put sheep on them. <laughs> oh my God. The Scots definitely don't suffer fools gladly. It's part of the incredible wit and sharpness of the people there. I'm just a charlatan Scot. I don't know Scotland at all. But does John? Final round. Scottish slang. Here is a Bolivian reading some Scottish slang, probably pronouncing it horrendously. Here's her first one. Ball hair. <laughs> I mean, ball hair uh, is definitely slang that I would both understand and use in a metaphorical context to define something that was missed but only by a fine margin. As in, you're a ball hair away from a beaten would be a way of telling someone that they're being cheeky. I th- I think this is to boke. I've definitely boked in my time. Ah, you've boked. Oh, loads. So, so to boke is to, to vomit or to be sick. And if something is boken, it's disgusting as well. So uh, that's boken. <laughs> In fact, there there is there is like an extra like side misinformation segment which would be do the Scottish vomit more than the rest of the UK. <laughs> Definitely not. We can hold our liquor much better than the rest of the UK. And our heroin and our battered Mars bars and all the other stuff that might <laughs> induce bulk. So I'm gonna give you a phrase nice. and you're gonna tell me if I'm pronouncing this bit of slang properly. With even is your voice, your toichter diddy. I honestly don't know what you're saying. Tuchter, maybe. I think if it's tuchter, that's me. That's a that's a northern Scot of farming background. That's what that's what like people from like the central central lowlands, Glasgow and Edinburgh, would describe people from Aberdeen or Inverness, the kind of Highland folk. Yes, um, that is. Didn't make out any of the rest of it, but never mind. <laughs> John nailed all of the slang questions. He was so annoyingly good, I cut most of them out. He's one of the most verbose fellas we know, so not much of a surprise there. Talking is what the Scottish people excel at. There must be something in the water or the iron brew. We asked John how he thinks we did. Are the people of the world misinformed about this beautiful nation? You know, your feelings on what people think about Scotland from the outside, all of these kind of general stereotypes. Are you tired of this shit? Are you kind of proud of some of this? Like, how do you feel about all this stuff? 
oh, it changes on a daily basis. Um, but generally, I think one thing that we're quite good at is being able to take the piss out of ourselves. So I think that we're like, we're, we quite enjoy it because it's an excuse to just have a bit of a laugh at ourselves as well. Because nice. we know that the weather is rubbish and we walk about in skirts and we eat <laughs> sheep stomachs and <laughs> wash wash them down with a drink that has no identifiable flavour. <laughs> and, like, all of those things are totally true, but they're brilliant. <laughs> oh my God, that is so good, man. So we added up the questions we asked John about Scotland. And based on the top things the world believes about the country. Thanks, Google. And we counted how much was right. So according to our judges here at Passport, the final tally is that the worldview on the country of Scotland is about 30% accurate. But you gotta hand it to the Scottish. They revel even more in making you think that the remaining 70% is true too. Just for the conversation. And just for the laughs. And that really tells you everything you need to know about them. Here's a little takeaway for you. The royals of England originally adopted the lion as their own national animal. Because, you know, there are so many lions in England. According to folklore, dating back to the ancient Babylonians, the lion only has one enemy. So in true, brilliant Scottish fashion, as a nod to the magical quality of the land, Scotland chose, as their national animal, the unicorn. It's true. Look it up. They chose their symbol of their country as a laugh to wind up the English. So, huge thanks to our English for letting us wind him up. I actually think you did all right. I think, uh, I mean, you did well in as much as, well, like three things. One was that you knew a tiny bit about Scotland. And um, two <laughs> was that that you are radio hosts looking for provocative answers. And three, you are my friends who would never miss an opportunity to take an hour and a half to wind me up about Scotland. <laughs> so, I think that... He's on to us. I just, not to mention the fact that the, the opening five minutes of our conversation was you basically predicting this whole fucking episode. Amazingly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Thanks so much, man. All right. So it's lovely. Edit me nice, darlings. Here's John English again with his five favorite authentic Scottish experiences. Because on misinformation, we like to get our saved pins straight from the unicorn's mouth. Here are my five unmissable bits of Scotland. Number one, the Battlelands Ballroom. A Glasgow institution, live music done Scottish style, which means discerning but mental crowds who take their music and their celebration of it 
super seriously. It's the most glorious place John has ever watched live music and one of the few genuinely independent venues left in the world that still attracts important and amazing artists who rave about it. Number two is a view. And it is the view of Loch Marie from the top of Glendoherty. The view of Loch Marie from the top of Glendoherty. John reckons this is quite simply the best view in Scotland. And it's up against some pretty fierce competition. The spot John's talking about is on the North Coast 500, a route around the north of the country, which is also worth a shout. You can even find some of John's work close by in Gaelock Heritage Museum, which is a disused nuclear bunker. Double whammy. Number three, Arthur's Seat. If you want to see the capital, then dodge the waddling tourists on the Royal Mile and Princess Street and climb the hill that lets you take in the whole beautiful expanse of Edinburgh. Then, when you're back at the foot of it, visit the Parliament Building. It causes great debate from the outside and unified awe from the inside. Number four is Cheneville Bothy. That's a Bothy. Bothies are publicly funded and maintained cottages. They're dotted all over the highlands, mainly for walkers and farmers who are out on the hills overnight. It's a free place to stay. There's no fees, no booking systems, just an unlocked door. Cheneville is set in a particularly spectacular location, but any Bothy experience leaves you liking Scotland just a little bit more than before. And then finally, number five, the Isle of Isla. The Western Isles are all incredible, but Islay benefits from fewer tourists than Sky, wonderful coasts, distilleries, pubs, seafood, and a sense of proper Scottish isolation and tranquility. We'll put a link to these saved pins in our show notes and also on our Instagram at Passport Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Um, that's it for this week. As always, you can check us out on all social media, Passport Podcast on Instagram for all kinds of show-related fun. If you want to represent your country against an ignorant barrage of questions that you've heard a thousand times before, you can write to us at passporthost at frequencymachine.com and uh, we'll help the world try and sort the fact from the fiction. Next Tuesday, we head to Finland's capital, Helsinki, for a look underneath the city. Bunkers tunnels, and more. But is this national-level prepping or something else entirely? We'll see you next week. This week's episode of Passport was produced and edited by me and written by myself and Andres Bartos. Huge thanks to the brilliant John English, you can see just how good a storyteller he is by visiting toxoproductions.com. That's O-T-O-X-O Productions. It's a film school here in Barcelona. So if you fancy learning all of the skills John English obviously possesses, hit them up. Come and hang out with us and make a film in Barcelona. We'll put a link in the show notes. Music on this episode was willed into existence by Nick Tanner with additional stuff by Fittingly, Fish and Chips, Eric M. Amor, and Shake That Little Foot. The show is mixed and mastered by Julian Kwasniewski, Stacey Book, Dominic Ferrari, and Avi Glajanski are all born unicorns. They also executive produce the show. 
which is hosted by myself and a man who would almost certainly wear nothing under a kilt, given the chance, Andres Bartos. <laughs> we'll see you in the next place. Mm-hmm.